Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Innovation distinguishes between a leader and a follower. It's a quote from American inventor, designer, and entrepreneur whose passion and creativity has impacted millions, if not billions of people across the world. The co-founder of Apple, Steve Jobs. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today. Someone inspired to challenge the norm, to drive shift to lead business and society forward. Our guest is Luke Sayers AM, founder and executive chairman of Sayers Group, a modern advisory and investment business. He's also president of the Carlton Football Club, and Chair of Inclusion Foundation. Luke was previously Chief Executive Officer of PwC Australia and Vice Chairman of PwC Asia Pacific, where he led a team of over 700 partners and 8,000 staff, growing the firm's revenue from $1.4 to $2.6 billion. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in the United States, Argentina, and the United Kingdom, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blend & Partners, Executive Search, and board advisory. In an insightful discussion, Luke shares with us the lessons, learnings, and highlights from a career that has seen him continually evolve, moving between continents, being appointed CEO of PwC Australia at the age of 42, and now having established Sayers Group. We hear of the differing approaches to innovation across the world, with Luke seeing shifts in mindsets, and people willing to break from and challenge tradition. So sit back and enjoy the edge of a new frontier. Luke, welcome to the show. Yeah, good morning. Luke, what is your golden rule for living a high-performance life? And when an opportunity comes, the greats seize the moment. How do you seize the moment? Yeah, look, a nice uh, a nice easy <laughs> question to get into it, Greg. Look, how, how do I... Uh sort of seize the seize the moment and how do I look at high performance? I mean, from my perspective, um, I love opportunities. I love different opportunities. Oftentimes, you don't know what the opportunity may bring or not bring, but I love to try my arm at different things. And I think in life, sometimes you can, uh, you can just live in your comfort zone too mm-hmm. much. 
and you can put boundaries or ceilings around sort of yourself and become quite complacent. And so I'm one to sort of probably just jump at those opportunities that I think will be a bit of fun that I'll learn and grow from. Hopefully I'll also have an impact on on something bigger or broader yep. than, than myself and sort of back yourself and have a crack. How does that fall in line with the old man's words, keep it real? Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of fakeness in life, Greg. And my dad was uh, was a pretty real sort of sort of character, and and just always always encouraged you know all of us to keep your feet on the ground and keep being true to yourself and work hard and and have fun in life and be respectful in life and just treat people like you would want to be treated. So. I come from a fairly sort of um, just real environment growing up as a as a child, and you know I've tried to very much with with Kate, my wife, distill those family values in in our four kids, and keeping it real is a part is a part of that because you can get over your ski tips very easily in life and start believing your own BS and start believing everybody else's BS, and you know most times uh, a lot of it's just not true, and so yeah, keep it real. Keep it genuine. Where do you come from, Luke? Rochester, Victoria, a country town uh, on the Campaspe River, up near the border of Victoria and New South Wales. A small little town called Rochester, which is, you know, probably uh, the closest town would be Echuca, yeah. um to it, which which sits on the Murray there, sits on the border. Uh, spent the first uh, nine years of life there. Loved it, you know, uh, country footy, country cricket. Growing up as a as a, as a little uh, a little country Victorian, mum and dad were academics. Mum taught at the school, and dad dad was the principal of the high school there. And then uh, at the age of nine, we went off to Calgary in Canada, where dad did his PhD in educational administration, and mum did her masters. And uh, the three of us had an awesome experience, sort of for the next three years, living on campus at the University of Calgary and learning to play ice hockey and flag football and, and go to this thing called elementary school and then junior high and, yeah, just fond memories of my uh, of my childhood in country Victoria and also in Canada. I hear you're a pretty decent uh, ice hockey player. Or is that just a rumour you started? <laughs> Probably the latter, mate. <laughs> Probably the latter. Yeah, no, I used to love it. You know, it's a, I still do love it, but don't play it obviously anymore. Yep. But it's a fast physical game. You have to be able to skate, but you also have to have – uh, obviously, good good hand eye coordination to be able to to control the puck and and move the puck where it needs to be, and uh, just fell in love with it for my time in Canada. And then when I came back to Australia, continued to uh, continue to love it and practice and play here. And uh, uh, yeah, it's a it's it's a ripper, absolutely. So was ripper. it Luke? Was it under 16s Australians team? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to to play in the under 16s, under 18s. I think also under 21s and. A number of uh, number of trips overseas to play in global competitions. Uh, fond memories, great mates still to this day, and great sport. What happened, Luke? Was it injuries got to you, and you couldn't fulfil and pursue it any further than that? Yeah, pretty much, Greg. I mean, it's uh, you know, I wanted to kind of probably like sort of aspiring people in whatever sport it is. You know, I wanted wanted to play college hockey in yeah. the US or Canada. Yeah. And go on and, and try my arm just just wasn't wasn't good enough. Okay. Had a number of injuries and uh, so hung up the skates to become an accountant. I was going to say, talk um, about how, how good how good's that? <laughs> talk about change of pace. 
<laughs> yeah, a little bit of a change of pace. <laughs> what drive you to accounting? Is it the old one where, look, it, it covers me throughout life. I'm, if I get a degree in accounting, I'm at least I'm set? Or what, what, what was the ambition? Because also, you weren't twiddling your thumbs at university in accounting either, were you? Yeah, look, it's funny, Greg. Again, again, you know, you trace it back to my mum and dad that it's, it is kind of um, – I get the mickey taken out of me quite a bit when people hear I did a, a computer science degree and an accounting degree. People go, but Luke, you're like you're you're, the, you're not really like an accounting sort of person. You're not really like a computing guy. So, what happened? But basically, my mum and dad, and this is going back, you know, this would be this would be late eighties. They firmly believed that whatever you wanted to do in life, if you had sort of hard skills like finance, and they saw the technology wave sort of coming, you can kind of pivot that to wherever you want to go. And so. I went into a double degree and battled my way through that and, and was fortunate enough to get an internship at PwC and had an amazing experience well, there. that's after becoming president of the Accounting and Computer Society at Monash as well, wasn't it? <laughs> You've done your research. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, yes. that's, a, that's a big achievement. <laughs> yes, yes. So I think, uh, I think what happened was um, PW, no chocolate there, right? Uh, it's, it's a very esteemed sort of, uh, sort of position. So what happened was PW uh, sponsored the sort of club or group on campus. And as a result of that role, I got an internship at at PW. And uh, when you think of accounting and you think of computing, sort of they're not sort of what I see as as what my sort of fortunate gifts are. I'm more a people person and I just love the people at PW. And that was different clients and that was – that was people at the firm, and um, if there's good people and, and good challenges and good opportunities, then count me in. Yeah, so well, in those days, what was it? Was it the big eight in those days, Luke, when you joined them? Uh, I think it was the big yeah. eight that then went to the big six, yeah. and obviously now the big and what, four. And, what, and then yeah. you got the opportunity to move to the US, is that is that right, with the firm? Yeah, so I, I, I did my PY in Melbourne, but had travelled a lot, obviously, as a, as, as a youngster, and I also took a year off through my university course and, and backpacked around the world for a okay. year. And so I had I still had unfinished business as far as travelling. Yeah, right. I remember I, I went in and, and resigned and said, I'm off. And uh, the partner uh, the partner who, who is my mentor today, uh, a guy by the name of Paul Brasher, who actually is also the Essendon, Essendon president um, today, one of our arch rivals here in the AFL, he said to me, what are you doing? Like why and how and what and I said well you know Paul I've I've run here run hard for three or four years but I want to go and travel and do different things and I'm getting married and uh Kate and I myself are off and uh he said well can you just hold that thought for 24 hours and then he came back the next day and said listen we'd like to move you to the US firm you can live in Washington DC or or New York we'll send you across there and why don't you use that as your base and work at PW in the US and and then look to travel and branch and have different experiences from there. So it was a great move. We loved it and we were able to sort of achieve both uh, over that next uh, – we ended up staying five years. Yeah, you when you made partner there, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, so look, talk us through, Luke. What's the difference between working in the US at that level and working in Australia? What did you learn? What did you learn about the art of engagement, the art of bringing people along? What's the big takeaways for you? Because this was pretty formative for your career. Yeah, no, it was. I think there's really – really good things about American business and the sort of spirit of innovation and positivity and can do 
And, you know, for people that really want to have a crack and kind of don't worry too much about other things in the ecosystem, noise or or anything else, I think it gives you a great platform. And so it's an amazing, amazing place to sort of be at the cutting edge of different business models, different technologies. You know, I was uh, I was in the telecoms and technology business and, you know, I was able to sort of see through the WorldCom MCI merger, then the WorldCom MCI sort of, you know, combustion and WorldCom folding. It was the startup sort of mecca and so the, the dot economy sort of was flying and just to see the way in which capital came together with innovation and ideas to create growth is pretty special. And so I'd, I'd very much be in the camp of encouraging young kids to to really go and explore and, and have a period of time in the US. For Kate and myself, we came back because we wanted to raise a family in Australia and we had our first girl in the US. But, you know, one of the downsides of the US business environment is that you spend your life, especially in sort of the consulting world, on the road. And if you want to raise a family, it's really, really hard to do that as a, as a couple. You know, it ends up being, you know, predominantly the woman, in some cases today, the man, but predominantly the woman that, that raises the kids. And, and that's not what, what Kate and myself wanted. So we, uh, we came back to Australia. And I think uh, one of the beauties about Australia is that you can find a greater balance as far as work and life. You don't have the travel sort of uh, pressures that you do have in the US, but you do also miss out on, on some of that sort of leading edge innovation, ideas, technology, capitalism at its best. And how did you find, as you said, the difference between positivity and Australians are you know, pretty good at knocking the, you know, the, the tall poppy syndrome versus the Americans and get in there and have a go. And if you fail two or three times, don't worry about it. Now I've messed in you, at least you know how to move forward. How did you find sort of addressing that when you came back? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's funny because I, th- I do think Australia's changing. Like Australia is still a very, very, very conservative country. Unbelievably so. And it is still sort of the, the tall poppy. Um, absolutely is. And that's because, you know, we live on a small island. There's small number of people. In any one day, there's not a lot going on. Uh, that doesn't mean and, we're small-minded. So, that doesn't mean we should be small-minded. No, I, didn't, I, didn't I didn't say small-minded. Uh, but, but you know what yeah. I mean? Like it's just a, it's a smaller it's a smaller sort of ecosystem. And, you know, we have, we have basically four banks that rule the roost. We have a couple of retailers. We have a couple of telcos. We have, you know, you kind of got these organisations that have all the structural power. Now, uh, what is happening is absolutely, and I think COVID's accelerated this, Greg, my belief is that the spirit of entrepreneurialism and innovation and the willingness to back people to have a go is definitely improving. And, you know, there'll always be big guy sort of versus small guy and, you know, throw enough stuff and hope that something sticks. And, you know, that's just competitive forces and competitive people. But more and more of those organisations of people are breaking through that ceiling. And I think that's awesome for Australia as, as a yeah, country. That's all, that's all good news. And I agree with you, Luke. And we'll talk about what you're up to in a few minutes. I guess that's one part of saying get out there and have a go and do really well. But am I going to pay for it? Because the other part is in that mentality in Australia, which is changing. But I'm interested in your thoughts on this and the reason why you set up your firm. Am I going to back you, Luke, or am I going to be scared to death again and back myself and in my career and not take that risk because you don't get fired for um, using the IBM model? 
Yeah, so look, it's not all the way there. And, and Greg, I'd, I'd say horses for courses, okay. right? So, and that's good because not everybody is is wired for startup world. There's a lot of people that want to go and join a secure organisation, get a secure um, paycheck and do good work and contribute. And that's fine. That's all That's all good. But for those people that have a burning desire to create something and put a little bit at risk, work their tails off, innovate and fight for every, for every dollar and fight for every customer and do everything they can to drive loyalty. You know, we want those, we want those hungry people and startup world wants those, wants those hungry people. More and more people are starting to look at that as a pathway as opposed to just coming out of university and going into a big system and then just writing that for life. And I think that's great. And I think that's great. And I will say, I do believe that a part of that is is COVID related, that the value proposition for a lot of people that joined those big organisations was to go overseas with those organisations, go to training programs overseas with those organisations, learn on some of those big global clients. If that learning pathway isn't there in a real and physical way, more and more people will look for other learning experiences, other growth opportunities, and I think that that does push them into this into this sort of startup ecosystem. Well, it seems to be the land of boutiques, doesn't it? Starting to happen, you know, like investment banking and advisory houses, etc. But the flip, the question I'm sort of coming at, I'm hearing it from your side of things. Are you seeing it enough from the customers willing to make a break break from that tradition, Luke? Look again, depending on the on the client, uh, I'd say yes. It's more in those progressive industries, Greg, the more traditional industries. You know, state governments and and federal governments, they are on the one hand encouraging and trying to accelerate local homegrown startups, local homegrown jobs. But on the flip side of that, they're the most conservative organisations in opening up their doors and and helping helping those homegrown organisations get off the ground. That's fundamentally different to a Singapore or a number of the, the Nordic countries. Yeah. Your large-scale uh, organisations, depending on the CEO or the executive, it will it will differ depending on their on their risk tolerance. But at the end of the day, more and more people are looking to work with great, awesome people that they trust, they believe in, and they know they will get quality service and a great a great outcome. Okay. Let's just go back a little bit. So you're you're in the US. The family makes the decision to return. You're fairly senior. You're going really well. And you've got to settle back into to Australia. You're going to build some of those relationships again. But you've probably got a choice. Choice is do I stay within the profession or do I depart to corporate? Why did you stay? Um, I stayed because I had a loyalty to the firm and the individuals that were here when I left. You know, like... They gave me uh, an 18 month secondment when I resigned and they were very good then in extending the 18 months out for, for five years. Um, and when I was due to come home to Australia, the merger had just come through with PW and Coopers and Librand. There wasn't any partner positions because we were actually over partnered because of what the merger had done, but the firm was terrific in still finding a way to open up a position, open up a slot, and uh, and let me return back from the US. So I felt a uh, a lot of loyalty to uh, to the organisation. What stands you out, Luke? You don't make 
CEO and managing partner by the age of 42 by being subpar. So what do you think stood you out? Because it is a competitive industry that you're in externally and internally. Probably a, a huge dose of luck, um, Greg. And, and I say luck because I was probably courageous enough to take opportunities, but there's also in any opportunity a, a great deal of luck that gets played into it. So if I kind of look back and think about it and the different roles and the different things I've done, probably in a fairly conservative profession, I was courageous to try and try and change it up and try different opportunities. And then I got, you know, I got some good results, which I can thank uh, partially to great people sort of around me and with me. And also, I think, you know, a good deal of luck. Well, why don't you talk us through some of that change? Because some of it was significant, as you say, to a fairly conservative industry. I mean, I'm always, I'm always looking at doing new and different, you know, ways. And I'm, I'm probably, my teams would say I'm a, I'm a restless sort of ideas and innovator and always looking for different, uh, different things to do better. I like to be a good human and I like to get the best out of my teams. And so, you know, we were, we're pretty good in setting a cultural transformation at, at PwC, you know, a, a real purpose to, yes, change the culture of PwC, but also lean into where our voice should help society and, and the country more broadly. And so the culture at PwC became much more inclusive. The culture at PwC became equally much more high-performing. It became a, a blend of kind of head and heart, not just head, which is traditionally the big the big accounting firms. And so that was significant. And probably when I look back on it, that whole cultural transformation, which then led to the results from a client feedback, people feedback, growth, profitability, et cetera, is, is, is what I'm proud of. But it, it all comes back to the people and culture. So what's head, head is your technical expertise? What's heart? For those out there who don't work in the profession, but have seen this, seen the landscape change. Your, your emotional intelligence, your relationship intelligence, your your sort of ability to see around corners. It's a lot of that intangible that more and more clients are looking for in a world that's greyer rather than black and white. And, uh, you know, that's that's what you need to be to be a top advisor these days. You need the, the technical depth and rigour, but you also need the, the judgment, the warmth, the humanistic side of the equation as well. So what do you reckon makes you different to the others out there then in the sense of the firms that you're competing with? Because by this time, we're down to the top four. What was the edge? Look, I think all the four firms were, were good firms. I would say that, that we were differentiated based on the depth and breadth of our people, Greg, and, and the culture that we were able to create within the firm such that people collaborated and worked together across the various businesses to get the best outcome for our clients. And, you know, it's it's all about people. Our game is all about all about people. So what's leadership then, Luke? If we're on this and you're running one of the largest businesses in the country, what's leadership? And also, I think you were really upsetting and changing the sort of the pedigree of the people coming in as well, weren't you? Yeah, look, to be a leader, um, you need to have followers. Well, you've got a whole lot of them there wanting to be led, probably. Um, um, and, it's, and it's people can, and there's, there's been probably more books on leadership than any other topic. That's right. But if, you, if I give you the Rochester, <laughs> the Rochester Victoria definition, Greg, to be a leader, you must have a follower, a follower that wants to, wants to grab onto something and do something special, not, not kind of is just going through the motion because that person's more senior 
and is just kind of, you know, following the hierarchy, but, you know, is inspired by something, whether it be a vision, a purpose, values, behaviours, outcomes, there's something magical that somebody says, you know what, I want to get on that and I'm going to, I'm going to work and I'm going to push and I'm going to prod to be a part of that. And, you know, that is, that is leadership. Now, there's a whole slew of different one percenters there that go to the machinations of leadership, yep. knowing when you need to, need to love and nurture and support and encourage a person versus knowing when they need to kick up the butt and some tough love and um, some real accountability, you know, you need to be able to, with your forehand and your backhand, use your judgment on what what you're going to, you know, what you're going to do to get the best out of that team or that individual or that or that organisation. And so there's a head and a heart piece to leadership, yep. a mechanical and almost a spiritual intangible that you need to have an ability to to create fellowship. That to me is is what it's about. And when you meet a great leader, you you know, like I want to be with that person. You know, in in life and in Australia, we need more of those. Were you ready to lead? Were you ready when that when that opportunity came up deep deep down, Luke? And when you sat back and thought, "Geez, this is coming my way," was I ready to leave, or I'm gonna I'm gonna suck it and run like hell? Oh, there's there's a bit of there's a bit of everything going on. <laughs> there's a there's a bit of everything, Greg. You know? On the one hand, you feel ready. On the other hand, you're petrified. On the other hand, you're looking over your shoulder to see whether anyone's with you. You're trying to figure out, well, what are we trying to achieve? You've got all of those things going on. And it's your ability to kind of put all that kind of on ice and then to just methodically and, and calmly work through what needs to be done and who's with you and how we're going to do it and to build that almost from the bottom up. Because when you go into any role, you don't have all all the answers. You don't, you don't even know all the problems. You're kidding yourself. And anyone that says, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to transform this or do this or create that. They're absolutely full of it. Life isn't like that. And, and so you go in, you go in with experience and skills and beliefs and values and, you know, a big heart to achieve something. Um, and then you get to, you get to work, but you, you do more listening and understanding as you navigate your way through that, especially in the early stages. Mm. A lot of the words which came up in the last five years are all around collaboration, 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 which is all good. And everyone's, everyone's seeking to get together and hold hands and collaborate, Luke. Sometimes I actually stand back and wonder, is anybody going to make the decision here and actually lead? Do you have a view on that? Because every senior executive you meet, I'm sure they walk into your offices when they come in to have a chat to you. You probably ask them, talk me through how you do lead and give me some examples or what have you done, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, look, I collaborate a lot. That's terrific. Anyone in the room going to make a decision? How do you ascertain that? It's a great point because in a lot of organisations, uh, not just in Australia, all across the world and you know, decision making is something that you know people shy away from, mm. uh, and oftentimes it's the upward, the upward delegation whereby you know people are afraid that if they make a call and it's a wrong call, they're going to get shot, and so therefore everyone just does circle work 
and the decision gets punted upstairs and then they get edgy and then that gets punted upstairs and, you know, oftentimes the poor old CEO who knows most times the least about sort of the, the decision that needs to be made is there trying to sift through layers of leadership to help on whatever the decision is. So I think you're right, but I think this comes back to this conservatism yep. and this ethos of, of you've got to have accountability. You've got to have accountability. But if everyone's everyone's petrified to make a mistake or to screw up, yep. then you, you never actually you never actually get the culture of of having a go and pushing the boundaries. And and so again, like anything in life, Greg, it's it's the beautiful balance. Mm. You've got to find that balance of support and encouragement to make a call, have a go, innovate, and be accountable. And my perspective is if people are constantly, constantly screwing up and not learning, then that's no good. But equally, if people are just abrogating their responsibility to make the call and get on with it, that's also equally not as good. So you made CEO, you, you, like you said, you're pretty young, you're 42 years old, you've probably got a lot you decide you want to get on with. How do you firstly then sit back and address what tempo am I going to work to to bring people along? And the other part, I guess, as you say, people put these decisions up to the boss. Who do you bounce the decisions off? I have a couple of uh, a couple of Northern Victorian <laughs> principles to build off the back of my good country definition of leadership. First one, get just great people around you. You know, people that have strengths and skills that are different to yours. Make sure that they've got you know the values that you want. From, from a leadership team perspective, but that's your that's your sounding board. That's your, you know, 1,000% in a vault, talk about everything board. That's the team and anything goes within that team. Okay. And and so that's, that's really important for me. The second thing I'd say is to the point of tempo and pace, I firmly believe in sort of a, a, the first phase in listening and engaging Whenever you go into whatever role it is, there's too many people that think they know best or know the answers and they go in guns blazing. Right. I think that's fundamentally wrong. I think you have to go in and, and listen and understand and engage far and wide and build, build those trust pathways, um, not just at the top of the tree, but also at the bottom of the tree, middle of the tree, external customers, regulators, whatever it may be. But when you have that fact base, move with real speed because you've got to jolt the, the culture and you've got to jolt the system. Yeah, right. And so I'm not sort of a, we're just going to creep up on this and edge up on this. There's a listening, there's an understanding, there's a fact pattern, there's work, but then it's bang, we're on. And it's well thought through the changes that need to be made, why, what, how, and you move with speed. And there is a serious tempo lift for for probably a three month a three month blitz yep. to quickly get through all the changes, yep. and then it's into a stable phase. Right, and you know that is when your leaders need to stand up and and really pick up and and drive the tempo. And so for me, that is the approach that um, that I found works works best. Okay, so if I'm going to be part of your team, what are you looking for in skills? and characteristics or in values, as you just mentioned? Integrity, courage, ability to speak up without fear or, or favour, 
um, robustness, empathy, want to have a fair income go, to do something special in the community and, and believe in helping helping others as much as, you know, trying to do some, something for a team or for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those sort, of, those sort of people, Greg. I look at those characteristics and those values and it's, it's because of probably the level, but I take for granted the functional or technical or mechanical skills because those, those skills will be mastered, you know, through the various roles that those individuals have played. So I'm looking at more character. And what do you reckon, Luke, when it really comes, push comes to shove and all the experience that you've had, how many people do you really, percentage-wise, do you think, really want to give it a real go? Uh, great question. Because they're hard to find. Yeah, I probably, you know, I think it's, and, I, and, I've, and I've thought about this question and I don't know whether I've changed, changed my perspective on it, but I look, at, I look at sayers at the moment, my business, and we've got about 90 people, I think, now. All 90 of those people want to have a go. And they've left big, comfortable organisations, great global branded organisations in investment banking, in strategy, in technology, in advisory to come and have a crack, right? So that's awesome. Now, is that still sort of 100% in three years' time? It it might not be, right? right? But you don't get in the door unless you've got that burning desire to, to, to really try and run hard and create something. Probably in in the larger, more incumbent organisations, I sort of think that you've got 20% that really, really want to rough it up and challenge it. You've got 60%, sort of that middle 60% that are waiting to kind of understand what it means, how it's going to affect them, um, what does it mean to their, you know, their personal well-being, security, income, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you've got 20% that are just there for the ride. And I think I think the trick in large incumbent organisations is to is to inspire that that middle 60. Because the 20 are kind of a given. They're out the door charging before you even point the direction. Or agree on what you're trying to do. They're just they're they're self-started, they're self-motivated, they're 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 on it. Um, but that 60 is where the gold is, and if you can get the majority of that 60, you're going to create something special from a from a large organisation perspective because of weight of numbers and the alignment that that creates across across the organisation. Okay. One part of the journey I noticed with PwC was around the whole engagement with community. That seemed to be very important to you. Do you want to sort of share a bit about why that is so fundamentally important to you? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's just at its most fundamental level. You know, we're very we're very fortunate people to have have great skills and great educations and great jobs, and there's a lot of people that can benefit from that insight, that perspective, that that experience, and we should never take that for granted. And so, for me, it's it's just. It's helping others with experiences and skills that you've that you've got. And so one of the things that we did do at PwC was we encouraged all all senior people to find a passion play on a not-for-profit board. And so whether it be a, a sporting body, an education, a church, uh, a think tank, 
you know, whatever it may be, we really encourage people to be out helping those organisations with the skills and the gifts that, that that we're fortunate enough to have. It was amazing. You know, we had over, you know, a thousand people at the firm on on not-for-profit boards and and obviously that helps that helps the the organizations but also it helps it helps them as well and helps us build and develop experiences and perspective and context other than just the the day-to-day job that uh, that they're fulfilling at PwC what did success in your mind look like Luke before you departed at PwC what were you set out to that's it I've got to, I've got to get this now, I don't know what it is but what is success going to be when you walk down the street and someone says you did a good job. You're pretty successful. It's only you inside is going to know it. For me, it was about the, the people, Greg. The, the the people, you know, wanting to go that 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 little bit further, um, and being given the opportunity and trust to go that little bit that little bit further. You know, we had like organisations. We had balanced scorecards and revenue and profit and blah blah blah. It was that intangible that. That people said, you know, like I learned, I grew, I didn't think I, you know, I or we could have achieved that, and that's what has made me feel really proud of of PwC, and long may that continue under under Tom Seymour's leadership. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Luke Sayers AM. In our next episode, I sit down with Hisham El Ansari, Chief Executive Officer of Bupa Asia Pacific. So I think. You know, as I've reflected back over the years, there was clearly a, a strong drive to succeed and an impatience to make my mark on the world. And, um, you know, I think people are probably, people saw that, good and bad. And um, it, was a, it was a fascinating experience to be sitting around an executive table of people who were largely in their 40s and 50s. And I was the young Turk doing an MBA. Uh, a lot of those guys got there through their experience and hard work. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. Different phase of life now. Absolutely. So you're, uh, you're, <laughs> you're roaring now. You're energized. I'm sure nothing's changed in that regard. But what's getting you out of bed? What really excites you about this new venture? And maybe share with the audience what this new business is all about. What does SAIS stand for? Basically, uh, what gets me out of bed is we're trying to sort of change the game in, in advisory and investment services. We're restless with the status quo, Greg. So our tagline is new quo. Yes. Um, our, our good chief creative officer, Russ, Russ Howcroft, uh, feels very proud about coming up with new quo. Um, so it's it's new quo. It's a new way of, of trying things that are different. And we're hungry, we're small, we're agile, and we're doing great work with clients. Yeah, hold on. That all sounds great. But why are you better? I'm going to pay you. You're hungry and you're, you're agile. Terrific. Why are you better? Why are we better? Because we've got the best people, we've got the best ways of doing things, and you know we're able to invest alongside our clients uh, and with our clients, which uh, you know the big firms often can't. And so we're not a we're not a PE firm that just that just invests. Right. We're a PE firm and an advisory firm, and so we're able to sit there and, and invest money, invest time, take an equity stake, and work with our clients to drive value. So we are in the value creation game for our clients and ourselves. And that's, that's, that's different. That's new. That's different. And at the moment, we're absolutely loving it. So what are you seeing? Are you seeing, and I guess when you did your business plan, which is on a sheet of paper, but like all these things when starting a business, they change pretty quickly. 
Are people coming to you or are you still having to go out to acquire? What, what is it, you're starting to see a trend of the departure from the big end of town? Yeah, look, it's been fascinating. You know, we're, we're coming up to basically two years this really September. Okay, so we've been in market about 18 months um, and the clients, the friends, the relationships that have been willing to give us a go has has blown my mind. I, I mean, it's been it's been absolutely fantastic. Of course, we're still out, you know, meeting clients and, and looking at opportunities and so on and so forth. But more and more, you know, we're partnering, and it's not kind of a supplier client relationship. It's a business to business relationship, oftentimes driven by equity, you know, amongst. Both, both of us, because we've got equity as well. We're not just providing services. And we're head down, bum up to try and create that that economic value, either through trade sale or IPO or or some sort of some sort of event. And so word has got out very quickly and more and more and more people are are coming to us. And that's a great position to be in. But but we are we don't position or talk about us being kind of a supplier of services. Yeah, right. We're gone with the days of kind of master-servant kind of relationships. We want to partner with great people and great clients to drive economic value for our clients and for ourselves. Um, and, you know, that is that is unique and it's it's been going incredibly well for us. What about the boutique land when they, not yourselves, but others you probably look at and you start out? Then the pressure comes on. Uh, these major blue chip clients say, "Look, I'll, I'll have a chat to you, but aren't you going to be less expensive because you know you're not going to pay the same amount of money as everybody else on, on the rent, or uh, on this and on that? Therefore, surely you can sharpen your pencil a bit." Or, no, 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 you're coming to us because we're quality. We're as good. In fact, I'd argue we're even better because we're nimble, etc. Than our competitors. Where, where do you see the debate there? Or where, do, where do you see positioning of boutiques? in the mind eye of clientele in Australia? Because in the old days, I thought there was a bit of a push down, but I'm actually starting to see the push up. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there is a push up. And I think, uh, you know, the market's pretty hot at the moment, so there's a flight to quality. And, you know, we've certainly turned plenty of work away and we're happy for, for other organisations to do the work if it's if it's just, you know, based on price. You know, we want to work with great people that we can drive some sort of, uh, economic value together. It's not about a winner and a loser. It's about both organisations benefiting off whatever is the, the the piece of work or the plan that's uh, that we're working on together. So, from our perspective, we're not trying to be the lowest. Our prices will vary. Uh, you know, we we may take some sweat equity. We may take some success fee. We may take some cash up front. You know, we'll flex up or flex down depending on on what is best for the client yeah, right. and what is best for us. But we'll work through through that with the client and come up with with what the right combination is, and you know that's uh, that's an important differentiator to to the big firms that are you know really really running hard on billable minutes. We're not in that game. We don't want to be in that game. We want to be in the how do we create as much economic value for our clients and equally for ourselves. What are you zoning in on on the people you're bringing in, Luke? They, they can't be the same make and mold from the competitors from the PwC or no, the old organisation. 
few are really going to make it, aren't they, in the sense of really performance in an organisation like yourself? Yeah, so look, we're honing in on uh, on great sort of investment banking capability. Yeah, right. So out of the Macquarie's and the Goldman's, et cetera, and this goes to sort of our model of, of equity and services. And so, you know, that's uh, that's really, really exciting for us. We're honing in on on infrastructure people and not infrastructure consulting people, but people that have been there, done that, okay. you know, that have worked uh, worked for government or worked for construction companies, you know, from an industry side, because infrastructure and precinct development is is so big for the country over the next decade. We're honing in on on marketing and brand people, and you know, we've got quite a uh, quite an exciting proposition and offering in our in our brand momentum part of the firm. Uh, again, with the ability to invest in new emerging startup companies whereby we're building their brand, their marketing strategy, their go-to-market plan, and obviously, you know, taking equity through that cycle. So there's a number of areas. We've got uh, we've got about 20, 20 or so partners at the moment, Greg, and, and we'll just continue to build that up in a in a sensible way in the in the years to come. And where are you seeing the market as a whole in the next three to five? I'm optimistic. You know, like I don't think it's a sugar hit at the moment. You I don't. think there's, okay. there's no, I'm very optimistic. I'm very positive. There's a ton of money around. <laughs> yes, Melbourne has been sort of the, the lockdown, the lockdown city the last couple of years. Yep. But I'll tell you, I think it's going to be like the Ballarat Gold Rush and, and the Gold Rush days yep. um, over the next two, three years. Yep. So I'm very, very bullish as people come out of this and, and want to do business and, and want to, want to push their organizations forward. So, uh, yeah, very, very optimistic. You're seeing a lot of change in leadership about to happen? I am and yeah. has been happening. Yeah, um, so are we. You know, I think that will that will continue. The digital revolution is on us. Mm. What that means sort of up and down and sideways for large organisations is pronounced. I think there's going to be more and more divestments, more and more acquisitions, more and more roll-ups, um, more and more IPOs, more and more delistings. Uh, private equity will start to play a bigger a bigger role, venture capital will become more relevant. You know, we're we're moving, and we've got to figure out this Asian this Asian challenge that we have at the moment. Yep. The balanced way with with obviously the security implications that are obviously there as well. But we've got to we've got to find a way to 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 take Asian investment and yep. to work with our with our Asian brother and sisters for the prosperity of the country over the long term. You always wanted to run your own business. Yes. It's funny. Um, uh, a lot of people have asked me, you know, Luke, well, two things. One, you turned 50 and you could have hit the golf course. What are you doing? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Starting with a blank sheet of paper. And through the hard hours that I've had and hard days I've had, I, I have asked myself that question, but you just push on and, and push through. But the desire to kind of do something from the ground up, I think, has always been there. Greg, I, I love... I love impact. I love impact, you know, to change something or do something. And, you know, if if you're lucky enough to sort of impact society more broadly. So I like that. I'm motivated by that. And I, truth be told, I think that's also kind of why I like leadership and and like leadership roles at, at, at PwC because you could have an impact rather than maybe a lesser of a... Uh, of an impact and so yeah that's probably why i've got into it you struggle with fear of failure uh 
wouldn't rest too easy on you, would it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I'm pretty. I'm pretty driven. But I think failure is also a fact of life, and you're going to mess some things up. And I think it's you. You just learn and grow. Uh, learn and grow through it. Uh, you obviously build scar tissue, and any leader has a lot of that scar tissue because they've probably made a lot of mistakes on their on their way through and on their way up. You know, I would have made hundreds of mistakes over the last eighteen months here at Sayers. You know, from from little ones, uh, you know, recruiting a person that you shouldn't have, and then yeah. having to let that person go, or yeah. setting up a policy that looks like this, and then finding out. Four months later, gee, that policy didn't make sense. We need to go back and chat like hundreds. But you just you, you can't get too hard on yourself. And I think you just got to live and learn and keep keep growing and moving forward. Tough question for you. It's only early days. What's more satisfying, running your own show and bringing people on who've got that you know that DNA we're all committed, or working in a large organisation and using you know the the language that we always use, taking you through that transformation. I don't know whether I've got an answer. I mean, I loved I loved my time at PwC. It's an amazing organisation, great experiences. I hope uh, I hope a few people think you know still that we you know we did a good job. And sort of equally here, I've loved as hard as it's been for the first eighteen months. I mean, starting anything with a blank sheet of paper whilst you've got a global pandemic is kind of not for the not for the faint-hearted. Um, some may say a little bit crazy, but you're really proud of just getting a shingle on the door and getting an employee in the door and getting your first client and being able to bill a client and actually collect cash and it goes into a bank account. And and so it's you a know, good feeling, isn't it? it? It's it's I think it's the frame you set. And this is a great experience. I had a wonderful chapter, you know, for the 30 years. But now I'm into another chapter and can't wait to keep, you know, learning and growing and building what that chapter looks like. There's another big chapter you're a part of, and you mentioned scar tissue and heartache and, you know, putting your uh, putting everything into it. Carton Footy Club. President. <laughs> Jeez. Where, where are you going to take them? Well, hopefully. Uh, hopefully. Oh, ho- not- hopefully. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> I'm going to take them uh, into, the, into the finals, Greg. That's the... That's the that's the aspiration, you know. Our women's and men's team. If we can we can win enough games, we get to play finals footy. And if we get to play finals footy, we may give ourselves a chance to win a to win a flag. So um, it's a great honour to to lead such a, an illustrious club like the Carlton Football Club with yeah. such rich history over 150 plus plus years, an iconic brand in Australian sport. And I feel I feel very uh, very honoured. Uh, but you're right. It's a you know the world of AFL and professional sport. It's uh, it's not for the faint-hearted. You always been a fan of Carlton. Yeah, yeah, always, always have been. Used to love it as a as a country Victorian boy. You know, it's those days at Princess Park, which is now now Icon Park. Yep. Uh, growing up and and seeing the footy games. You know, as a as a Victorian kid, I think it, a lot of kids and and adults would. Uh, would have very fond memories of, of going with their parents or going with their father and, or their mates, the footy, and and that being a, a, a key part of kind of, you know, who they are. So, yeah, part of my my, my blood, my, my my passion, my interests. Look, I, I understand the game. I followed it myself a lot. 
a lot of regard for the Carlton Football Club. The only concern when you do a bit of, when I've done a bit of reading about footy in the state of play of Australia, out in the bush, Luke, you now we're reading about all the money going into the clubs and obviously giving back and bringing the youngsters through, but are you comfortable where the game is at in the bush? Calling a spade a spade. No, I think think there needs to be more done. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Gil and the AFL and all the clubs are on it. There's been a lot of uh, lot of other sports that, that um, have provided sort of competition. When I grew up in the bush, it was football and cricket, and that yep. was it. Yep. And, and today you've got a whole slew of different sports that, that kids can play. And parents are, are also, you know, playing a, playing a role there because, you know, a lot of parents think that a soccer or a basketball or whatever it may be is, is less damaging or less uh, physical on their, on their children. And so, you know, we need to, we need to do more to, to build up the grassroots and the pathways, not just in the, in the bush, but also in, in Melbourne as well. Now, do you apply a lot of thinking from sport to business or business to sport? Yeah, I, uh, I absolutely do. I think there's, there's tremendous, uh, tremendous crossovers because at the end of the day, you're trying to create a team, you're trying to have a performance culture and you're trying to achieve a certain outcome. And whether that be in business, whether that be in sport, whether that be in society at large, that's what you're doing. You're pulling great athletes or great business people or great academics together to create something special. Now, I believe we have stopped innovating as a nation. And I think this is because we are lacking strong and courageous leadership. This discussion, a lot of it is around leadership and high performance. That was, statement was made from you in 2014. You still um, holding firm to that view? I actually think COVID's um, uh, forced us, Greg, to change a lot more. And I think we've seen stronger leadership through a bit of the difficult times that we've all confronted through the pandemic. So if I was to compare sort of 2021, 22 to 2014, I think there's, uh, there is stronger leadership here in Australia. I think there's stronger leadership at a corporate level, at a political level. People may not agree with a lot of these decisions or the, the strength of leadership, but I think, it's, uh, I think it is more pronounced. And I definitely think in the innovation space, you know, through the COVID period, there's more and more people willing to invest and back entrepreneurs to, to innovate and, and bring new businesses to market. And I think there's more people willing to have a go because they're fed up with, uh, with kind of the status quo. So I'm definitely feeling much more positive on that front than I was back in 2014. What made you say it? Well, I think at the time we were, uh, we were stuck and I can't remember exactly back to 2014, but my, my instinct is that um, we were probably somewhat stuck politically. We were stuck organisationally. I think there was a, a raging debate about tax reform, which had been going on for years and years and years and, and hadn't achieved anything. We hadn't, we hadn't moved. I think at that stage we were also still talking about gay marriage and, and should it be a plebiscite or not a plebiscite or just make a call and get on with it. And so there would have been a number of things at that stage that would have caused me to, to, to feel that way. Luke, if you were to look three to five years ahead, what would Sayers look like? Where do you see the business going? Three to five years will be, uh, you know, a business probably uh, a circa sort of 100 million plus of, of revenue, some, you know, 250 people, very focused in the, in the deal space, the infrastructure space. The, the branded marketing space, et cetera. 
and we'll have uh, we'll have made a, a large number of uh, sort of equity participations, if you will, and uh, be working side by side a large number of clients whereby you know we are true partners in an equity sense with those awesome Australian uh, Australian organisations. So pretty excited about the next three to five years and you know looking forward to continuing to challenge the status quo on everything that we do. Luke, if you were to look back at that young gentleman who was going to be a professional ice hockey player, what advice would you give him now? Uh, train, train harder, be more committed. <laughs> um, uh, no, look, in, in all seriousness, um, whether it be ice hockey or AFL or whatever you want to master, I think it's really important for kids today to, to find a passion and find a dream and, and be, be excited and able to sort of, you know, motivated every day to work hard. So I think the single biggest piece for anybody is to find, find that passion, find that interest, and then to, to be the best that you can possibly be at that, at that passion or at that interest. If you're super passionate about something, you're not going to work. You're, you're living, you know, you're living each and every minute each and every day, and, and that drives higher performance. So whatever that may be, uh, find it and pin the ears back and, and go for it. On that, Luke, it's been absolutely tremendous to have you join us today. Thank you very much. Terrific, Greg. Thank you. And you've been listening to No Limitations. No Limitations.